If you have a Bible and you would like to turn there, we'll be in John chapter 8 this morning. Believe me, I tried to do John chapter 12. I didn't feel well all week. had to cancel a couple meetings and other things. So what I thought I'd do is something that's going to help me and remind you. It's going to help me do something I'm scheduled to do in Australia in a couple months. And that is to remind believers of our two-natured redeemer. It's a kind of technical language there. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, the one who brings man back into God's favor. But Jesus is not a mere man. He's very man, but he's also very God. And that's the odd thing, one of the odd things about Christianity, biblical Christianity, is its claim that the Son of God assumed our nature, a rational soul, and a real body to himself, a divine person, and exercised power according to both his divine nature and human nature at the same time during his incarnate state. He's a two-natured redeemer. He is both God and man. And in our passage, helps if you're a preacher to have a Bible. In our passage in John chapter 8, we're reminded of this. Some of you know, especially toward the end of the chapter. Um, But I want to read verses 48 through 59 of John chapter 8. Here we have, uh, picking up in John 8, we're, we're we're at the temple. Um, at Jerusalem, once again, this happens a few times in John's gospel. Our Lord is there. Uh, there are common folk there, and there are religious leaders there as well. Pretty typical temple scene for Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was there, regular pe- folks are there, and then religious leaders are there. In verses 31 to 41, it becomes obvious that at least some who John said believed, in verse 30, in fact, did not truly believe to the salvation of their souls. In verses 42 to 47, our Lord identifies the father of lies, the devil and his children, namely the religious leaders, which, by the way, connects with our study of John 12, right? And now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Who is that ruler of this world? Uh, Satan. He has children. They are unbelievers. We'll get to that in a week or so. Verses 48 to 51, the Jewish leaders accuse our Lord of being a false teacher and and a heretic and having a demon. Isn't that interesting? That connects to John 12 as well, right? If we are good readers of the Gospel of John, by the time we get to John 12, uh, and now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. We already have some information about the ruler of this world. He's the devil. He's a liar from the beginning. He has children. um, And the... Children of the devil claim that Jesus actually has a demon in him, a co-worker with the devil, a fallen angel. But after he denies having a demon and assuring the Jewish leaders that he honors the Father and they don't, our Lord does something he has done before. In verse 51, notice these words. Truly, truly, uh, sometimes it's verily Verily, John chapter 8, verse 51, the New King James has, 
Most assuredly, I say to you. Now, that's a, that's a verbal device that the Lord uses to say, if you're falling asleep during this sermon, stop it. This is important, you know, what I'm about to say. By the way, I don't know if anybody was falling asleep. So don't think I'm trying to wake somebody up. But if my voice gets real loud sometimes inside, you could probably go, somebody's, trying, somebody's falling asleep. He's trying to help him stay awake. By the way, I know what it's like falling asleep during sermons. Okay, so it's not like I'm perching myself up. I have struggled in my life sitting under sermons. Of course, I've never fallen asleep or struggled to fall asleep during my own sermon, though. Truly, truly is a device where the Lord is saying, this is very important. Now, look at these words in verse 15. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, which basically is, means if anyone believes what I'm saying about who I am in relation to the Father, he will never see death. Well, we don't have time, but when I preached through there, I thought I, I, I came to the conclusion he's not saying this literally as if none of the apostles would ever die. Their, their soul would not leave their bodies. And any and every Christian who truly, every person who truly believes in Christ will never have their soul separated from their body. That can't be it because in the Bible itself, the apostles die, okay? But what kind of death did the apostles die? And what kind of death do believers die? Do they die a death unto condemnation and ultimately damnation? No, so we have to distinguish. He can't mean they don't have their souls separated from their bodies, but it has to mean something. I think it means this. Believers, though they're going to die, they're not going to die like everybody else. Everybody else's death, all unbelievers, death is a portal to a worse state of existence. And it actually gets worse after the resurrection. For believers, death is not a portal to a worse state of existence. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, Paul said. So our death is different. It's not under condemnation. It's not under damnation. This is our Lord's way of keeping the main thing the main thing while going toe-to-toe with religious leaders. He's saying, look, you're saying I have a demon and all this stuff, but look, if you believe my word, you'll never taste death as a judgment upon your sins because somebody already tasted death as judgment upon our sins for us. So I want to read verses 48 and 40, 48 through 59. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, and I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, see what they're saying? Wait a minute, those guys died. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, 
If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. That's odd. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? You can kind of hear them snickering and laughing under their, probably not under their breath, uh, through their breath, you know, (laughs) mocking him. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Your version might have both I and A and M all capitalized. There's a reason for that. We'll get to it in a minute. Then they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So the Jews, in verses 52 and 53, respond to our Lord's promise of never seeing death with an assertion and a question. The assertion... uh, They make an assertion, and then they give its basis. Now, they say, we know that you have a demon. That's the assertion. Immediately after our Lord said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Immediately after he says that, these religious leaders make this claim. Now we know that you have a demon. In other words, they're claiming him to be insane, having a demon, claiming outlandish things. Now, why did they think this? I think their next words answer the question. Here's the assertion grounded. Okay, you have a demon. You just said, if anyone believes my word, they'll never taste death. Now we know you're absurd. Now we know you have a demon. Why? Because Abraham died. And the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. You know what? They get it. Jesus is claiming to be greater than Abraham and the prophets. But they just deny his assertion. They're arguing this way. You are claiming that some will never taste death. Abraham and the prophets tasted death. They died. If they died, then they did not believe your word. If the greatest and best men, Abraham and the prophets, died, you must think you are greater than Abraham and the prophets. Now we know you have a demon. He does think he's greater than Abraham and the prophets. You know why? Before Abraham was born... I am, whatever that means, okay? It's the, it's the thing that finally tips them over all the way into the water of wrath. Then they picked up stones to stone him. This reveals to us that they did, they did, and yet they did not understand the Lord's words in verse 51. If anyone believes my words, he'll never taste death. On the one hand, they got it. It made him greater than Abraham and the prophets, On the other hand, they didn't get it. Those who keep Christ's words, that is, believers, die, but they do not die the death of unbelievers. I think that's what he's saying here. Their death is not unto the death, uh, likened unto the death of unbelievers. So the Jewish leaders 
think Jesus thinks Abraham was an unbeliever, an unsaved man. He died. You say if people follow your word, they're not going to die. Abraham and the prophets died, therefore they're not true believers. Now notice the question in 53b, whom do you make yourself out to be? I think we ought to understand this question this way. How can you pretend to keep your followers from dying when all the great and good who were God's favorites in the Old Testament era died? What power is this that you are claiming for yourself? I think that's a good way to paraphrase that. Notice our Lord's reply in verses 54 to 56. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. This It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, and you have not come to know him, but I know him, and if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Again, this is like, what? Abraham, who died, rejoiced to see your day. He saw it and was glad. How could that be? So our Lord answers their question indirectly. This is not all about me as an independent person making outlandish claims. The Father makes much of the Son, yet the Jewish leaders despise him. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So this is a a way of saying, yes, I am greater than Abraham. I am actually the object of Abraham's faith. Abraham is our brother. He was a Christian. He rejoiced to see the day that the Messiah would be on the earth and do his work, and he saw it from afar, and he was glad. Abraham was actually, when he thought of Jesus, uh, now he didn't do it in the word, okay. He didn't say, oh, Jesus of Nazareth is my savior, okay. But he could say this, God has promised to send one who ultimately will deal with the devil and all the effects of sin on the earth, who's going to stand in my place, and by virtue of whose work, I will be justified in God's sight. It made him happy to think that way. It made him glad. I am greater than Abraham. I'm the object of his faith. Now, this seems odd at first. If Abraham died, how could he rejoice to see Christ's day, Christ's earthly ministry? The answer informs us about the gospel faith of those before Christ's coming. Note three things about this verse. First of all, Abraham rejoiced not while dead, but while living. Right? It wasn't after he died. It's not like he's rejoicing now, though I think he was rejoicing at the time that Jesus said this. It's back when Abraham lived, 1,500 years before our Lord walked the face of this earth. Abraham rejoiced to see 1,500 years later. Of course, he didn't know it was 1,500 years later. He knew it was in the future because based on previous promises of God that he received either directly from the Lord or through written accounts of others. By the way, Abraham didn't believe, didn't, Abraham didn't rejoice in the, in the day of Christ, didn't see the day of Christ and rejoice in it by virtue of reading Moses' writings, right? Abraham's before Moses. Abraham had promises that terminate on what we, who we call Jesus of Nazareth before Moses wrote about him. 
That's a, that's a freebie. Second, Abraham's rejoicing was caused by what he saw, but not with his eyes. Right? It's not a vision. I think saw here is a metaphor for believing. Abraham rejoiced. Abraham believed in the promises concerning the future about me, and as he did so, he rejoiced. And then third, Abraham seeing the day of Christ caused gladness to arise in his heart. The only way for this to be so is that God had revealed to Abraham the coming of the Savior of sinners, the Christ or the Messiah. This means that the promise of salvation through Christ was revealed and believed prior to the coming of Christ. And most of you have been here long enough to know how to argue that from Scripture. It's very clear from both the Old and New Testament. But let's go to verse 57. Jesus, the Jews reply mockingly. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now notice that Jesus did not claim to have seen Abraham. You're not yet 50 years old, and, and you, you have seen Abraham. He didn't claim to have seen Abraham. The Jewish leaders are thinking on a creaturely level. How can a man not even 50 years old, 30-ish, claim things about a man who lived and died 1,500 years prior. How can you know what he saw or believed? How can you know now, as a 30-year-old, what was in the head and heart of a man who lived 1,500 years ago? Here's our Lord's response in verse 58. Uh, It's a massive claim. Jesus said to them, wake up. I say to you before Abraham was born, I am. Now notice the common introductory words. Truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen. I say to you, this uh, this is like, this is it. You know, this is the biggest statement, the largest, the grandest statement in the passage, and it's going to end this section of Scripture for us. Notice also the words was born. The verb means to come to be, to come into existence. We could put it this way. Before Abraham even existed, full stop, I am, full stop. Now that, that's, that's interesting. Notice the words I am. These are the big ones. Uh, some versions might have them capitalized. Uh, this means to exist. I exist. Before Abraham came into existence, I exist. Now this is not only a claim that, that this is not only a claim that our Lord, in some sense, existed prior to Abraham. He's not claiming to be, according to his human nature, really old, but able to hide it well. You look under 50, but you're actually 1,500 years old. That would be a weird claim, right? Uh, People, by the way, in the early chapters of Scripture lived a long time, so it wouldn't be absolutely out of the the picture of, of, of possibility. But that wouldn't be a weird enough claim. 
To, to claim to be 1,500 years probably wouldn't cause them to pick up stones and stones him, stone to stone him because they knew what he was doing here, that he's claiming, again, he's claiming divinity. He's claiming that before Abraham existed, prior to the existence of Abraham as a real human being, body and soul, he possesses divine existence. This is one of those I am full stop. Uh, Unless you believe that I am full stop, you will die in your sins, John 8, 24. This is another I am full stop. Some of you might remember the quote of Augustine. It's not in the notes, but it was in a John 8 sermon. Pray tell, I am what? The Lord says, I am full stop. I am what? You know, and he says, isness. That helps. I am isness. I be. That doesn't sound like good English, right? I just am. Existence doesn't cause me to be. I am my own existence. We come into existence. He's claiming to be his own existence, which means he's claiming divinity. He was claiming to be the I am of Exodus chapter 3. Who do I tell him sent me? Tell him I am who I am sent you. A title used of Yahweh. Jesus is appropriating to himself a title revealed by Yahweh to Moses, describing something about Yahweh's uniqueness. He just exists. And it's clear that they got this because of their response. They picked up stones to stone him. Our Lord then is claiming to be divine, possessing divine and death-conquering power because he is the great I am. He can and does assure us that if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This adds weight to that statement. If anyone keeps my word, believes what I say about me in terms of who I am in relation to both sinners and to the Father, he'll never see death as a punishment for their sins. Well, who can make that claim? God, right? So this kind of gives warrant and weight to that claim. In two small words, I am, our Lord claims the mysterious, the awe-inspiring with massive implications. We'll explore it briefly in our time of contemplation. This is huge. I am. Wait, for good Bible readers, we're going... No, you can't say that. He just said it. He's using an Old Testament title for Yahweh, and he's saying, I am that Yahweh. Uh, By the way, the term Lord in the New Testament, uh, kurios, some of you have heard that before, Greek, is often an echo of Old Testament Yahweh texts. 
where sometimes Yahweh is translated in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Kurios, interestingly enough. Now look at John's commentary on how the discussion ended. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So it's obvious that the Jewish leaders uh, respond in a hostile way. They picked up stones to throw at him. It's clear that they took Jesus' claim as a claim of deity or divinity, which, by the way, would prove his pre-existence or existence in the form of God prior to existing in the form of man. Right? If he is I am, and he existed before Abraham came into being, then that proves his pre-existence in distinction from his existence as flesh. They viewed this as blasphemy, so they picked up stones to throw at him, according to Leviticus 24.16, but without a trial. So we're, these are outlaws here. You can't just do that. You have to have a, you're supposed to have a trial. No trial. Our Lord departs mysteriously. This happens more than once in the Gospels. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Sometimes he tells us why. Either Jesus does or John does. It's not my hour yet. So sometimes you think the Pharisees are in control of our Lord. And then you go, no, our Lord's in control of not just the Pharisees, but everything. No one took his life from him. He said, I have power to give it up and to take it again. I have, he had power to determine the moment of his death and the moment of his resurrection. So we're going to think about this a little. That was um, the exposition. And so we'll think through this now. We don't have application here at this church. It's all contemplation, okay? We, all, we just think. We don't... I'm kidding. But here, I do want to contemplate, which means think a little deeper about the implications of, of these kinds of statements by our Lord. Do you remember uh, in the reading this morning where Eddie was finishing up John chapter 20, where John tells us basically why he wrote that you would believe two things about the Lord... Uh, that he was the Messiah and that he was the Son of God. And that understanding these two, Messiah and Son of God, very man, very God, that you would have life in his name. So he's, this is an evangelistic gospel. Uh, it's also a, a gospel to be di- didactic or teaching for the saints, but also to get people to realize who Jesus is. Because if you don't get the two-natured Redeemer right, very God and yet very man, in one person, you don't get salvation. you got to get Jesus right, okay? So we, we need to make sure we get him right. And thinking through this verse, this claim uh, of the I am will help us uh, get him uh, right. So my first contemplation is this, and I have it in the language of behold, which means it's Good, right? Behold, which means what? 
check this out. This is like big news here. Behold our two-natured Redeemer. Our, our Lord is not like any other person, in case you haven't figured that out yet. He is the Christ, the especially anointed servant of the Lord, as promised in the Old Testament. But he's so he's son of Abraham, son of David, son of man, one who comes from man, kind that is. He comes from mankind through a woman without a man. But he's also very God as well. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh. Very word, very flesh. While he was and is very man, there is an aspect of his true identity which predates his manhood. And by the way, you can't see, if you're in the first century, if we were there, and if we saw the incarnate Son of God, we wouldn't conclude, wow, a theanthropic person. Okay, you know what that means? Theos and anthropos. The God-man, look at him. The second person of the Trinity assumed a real human nature. I can see it. You have to be taught it. You can't see the incarnation. You can see the incarnate one, but you don't conclude from merely seeing it. Very God and very man. You have to be told it. Okay? Same thing with the resurrection. You say, well, I wish I would have been there. If I would have saw the resurrection of the incarnate Son of God, uh, I would have believed the gospel. Well, you, you wouldn't conclude all the theology we have about the resurrection of the incarnate Son of God just by seeing him. People saw the incarnate Son of God before his incarnation and after his incarnation and didn't always get him right, right? Even in the, tea, in the midst of him telling them of his identity, I am stones. While acting according to his real human nature, he speaks word, words about his full identity which transcends his humanity. And here's what I mean. Before Abraham was born, I am. If we were there, we could have heard those words, probably spoken in Aramaic, okay? We could hear our Lord, according to his human nature, bring air in, cause air to go over his throat organs, however that, all that stuff works, sounds, go out through the waves, hit our ears, Cause those things to happen? I don't know all the technical. You know what I'm talking about, though. We would hear him say, before Abraham was born, I am. But he's not saying that according to his human nature. I am 1,500 years old. My flesh predates me coming through the womb of my mother. By the way, that's, that's, that's an ancient heresy. The heavenly flesh view of the incarnation. There's actually flesh that pre-existed, the flesh that the Holy Spirit caused to first exist in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's not true. He's not saying that, but he's still saying something about his person. He's saying something about his person, not according to his 
human nature. He's saying something about his person that is according to his divine nature, that he just exists. He is God. When he says, I am, in reference to himself, this is implying essential existence and immutable, independent being. While he spoke these words, and at all other times, and even before time came into being. This would show that he claimed an underived origin. That's a quote from somebody in the 19th century. That's a mouthful right there. When I read that preparing for this morning, I thought, I, I said that in a sermon? I'm, I'm quoting somebody else. Let me, say, let me read him again. When he says, I am, in reference to himself, this is implying essential existence. Okay, so uh, that is uh, his essence as God just exists. It's not a contingent existence. You know what contingent means? We're going to go play in the snow, contingent upon the presence of snow or absence of snow. Okay, depends on certain factors. The Lord, when he says, I am, his existence depends on no factors. Our existence depends on factors other than ourselves, right? He says he's therefore immutable, doesn't change, independent being. He's not the type of being that depends on being other than himself to be, like we do. So he can't be talking about his manhood, right? Because that came into being and is dependent upon and is dependent upon being other than human being to be. Sean got it. You can listen to the sermon later at half speed to get that one. You, you, everybody understood that that's a believer here. It sounded weird, but you get it. Everything that has come into being has come into being by him. God has not come into being. Therefore, he's God and brought things that are brought into being, into being, including his human nature in the womb of the virgin. An immutable, independent being, while he spoke these words, and at all other times, and even before time came into being, this would show that he claimed an underived, I'm putting in quotes, origin, because that doesn't sound right, right? Because that sounds, uh, origin, that means there was a time when he was not, then he came to be. His origin, his coming into being, was underived? Sounds like a contradiction, right? I don't think it is. I think it's a human trying to use human language to speak the ineffable, which means unspeakable. We can't really get to all the details of it because we're talking about God and the mystery of the Trinity and the incarnation and it's ultimately incomprehensible to the creature, utterly comprehensible, clearly comprehensible to God, but only God knows God as God knows God. We know God insofar as he's revealed himself to us. An underived origin. It's as, if, it's as if he says, before Abraham derived his being, I was in full possession of underived being. 
Before Abraham received being, existence, I was already in full possession of underived, immutable, eternal being. None of us can make this claim. This is, when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, it's either he's nuts or he's God and we need to repent and believe the gospel. This can only be true of God, I am. This means there is no cause causing him to be unlike Abraham who was brought into being. He was born. Abraham was caused to be by a cause greater than that which was caused. God. So this underived origin of our Lord is only true of his divine nature. It can't be true of his human nature because and the word became flesh that's creature it's not eternal it's not immutable it's not invisible flesh is very visible right however quoting somebody else though according to his divine nature he existed before abraham was made according to his human nature he was only 33 years old or however old he was this is the great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. First Timothy 3.16, you ever, you ever read that? The apostle recognizes the manifestation of God in the flesh is a great mystery, but it's revealed. We get bits and pieces of it, and we start to put the pieces of the puzzle together, but then at certain points we just go, where reason wanes, their faith may swim. Quoting, who is that? Thomas Watson, I think. In other words, we can go. We can only go so far in explaining the hypostatic union, the union of the two natures, the human and the divine, in the one person. And when we get to the end of the rope, according to Scripture, all we can do is worship. You know, stop explaining. This doctrine of our two-nature redeemer is a core Christian claim, core Christianity. In fact, John begins his gospel account with the mysterious words indicating this very doctrine. I already referenced them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Here's the language of origin. From the Father, full of grace and truth. Some of you read enough to know that, technically speaking, the way Christians have, uh, at least the Orthodox ones, explained this relationship between the Father and Son and Spirit is relations of origin. Have you ever heard that? They get it from verses like this. That's why that 19th century commentary commentator used the word origin and didn't mean it in a creaturely non-existence and then coming into existence way. It's just this relational language that we have to face as Christians that's in the Bible. Now, Christians of various denominations have been confessing our two-natured Redeemer for many, 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 many years. For example, here is the, the definition of Chalcedon, 451. Some of you have heard this which borrows from, um, actually borrows from at least the Nicene Creed, 
Listen to this. We then, following the Holy Fathers. So here's 5th century, 451 A.D. They're saying, we're following the Holy Fathers. We're following other patristics who have stated themselves similar to us. Probably the Nicene Creed, maybe the Apostles. All with one consent, we agree with them, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. One person, two natures. The same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. According to his manhood, before Abraham was born, I am. According to his godhood, I am. I am what? Divine existence. I'm I'm divinity. Truly God and truly man. Of a reasonable soul and body. Consubstantial or coessential with the Father according to the Godhead. One divine substance and consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead there's that relation of origin language And in these last days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary. So there's a, there's a balancing act going on there. You can try to hear, on the one hand, this. On the other hand, this. We confess both. Here's a, a hymn, a popular hymn, which attempts to encapsulate the fact of our two-natured Redeemer. For the purpose of worship, Christ, by highest heaven adore, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our, you know the next word, Emmanuel, God with us, hymn number 168, in case you were wondering, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham came into being, I was fully who I am according to my divine nature, though according to my human nature, I came to be. So I'm not 1,500 years old according to my humanity. I'm not even 1,500 years old according to my divinity. Because years are what? Are created means through which we determine the changes among creatures. So according to his divinity, he can't be old or young. He just is the divinity that he is. So our Lord spoke these words while acting according to his human nature But they indicate to us his identity is not exhausted by his human nature. He's not only very man. There is more to our Lord than being the Christ, the Messiah, as man. He is the incarnate Son of God. So I say this, behold our two-natured Redeemer. And I have more contemplation, but that's probably enough. That's... That's a load of information there. You just got Christology 301, not 101. 
Relations of origin. What is that? It's Christians of all ages trying to wrestle with begotten of the Father. Somehow related to the Father as Father to Son and Son to Father, not by virtue of the incarnation, but by virtue of divine persons in relation to each other eternally. God didn't become the Trinity. God just is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So these these technical words and phrases, some of them I read out of the, um, uh, the Chalcedonian definition, they're found in our confession too, but I think after the break we'll, we'll do with that. So the, the important thing is this. Here's the biggie that got these religious leaders all hot and steamy. If you believe my word, you'll never taste death. They, they figured it out. He's claiming to be greater than Abraham and the prophets. Those guys died, and he's saying, if you believe me, you won't die. Therefore, since they died, they were bad guys or whatever. And he's going, no, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. He still died, but he didn't, he didn't die as a judgment upon him for his sins unto condemnation and damnation. He died as a portal to a better state of existence awaiting the rest of the people of God who will come ultimately on the last day with the Savior and be ushered into Emmanuel's land where he gets all the glory. All this to say that this is actually an evangelistic episode in Jesus' ministry. He wants you to believe his testimony that he's very God and very man. Not being able to explain it in all its details and wax eloquently to anyone who might ask you difficult questions, but to, for the salvation of your soul, forgiveness of all your sins, for an entitlement to glory, to believe his words. Because then if you do, you're saved and you'll die, but not the death of unbelievers. You'll die that mysterious death of believers that is actually bringing us into a better state that we're in now in anticipation of an even better state when he comes in his glory. So if you haven't, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray you'd help us to sing in grateful response to these, uh, in one sense, very mysterious words by our Lord Jesus Christ. So bless, we pray. In In his name, amen.